This podcast was originally recorded for DevChat TV. Welcome, everyone, to Sustain Our Software, the podcast where we talk about softwareing our sustain or the other way around. Today, we have a couple panelists. There's me, Richard Litauer. Hello. Then there's Pia Mancini. Hello. And Eric Berry. Hey, y'all. I don't actually have a southern drawl, so I don't know why I said that. It's like a mid-Colorado and something drawl. (laughs) And then we also have Serkan Holat. Hello, everyone. And you're calling in from Amsterdam today. Yes, I'm calling from Amsterdam. Yeah, I'm a freelance software developer, developing web applications mostly since 2001. Lately specialized in Angular ASP.NET. I'm studying sustainability of open source issues since 2014. Back then it started for me with Chad Whitaker, uh, GitHub and GratPay initiative. And then he had an interview with Nadia Ekbal uh, about her work, about her article. And then I started following requests for commits. And then last year I joined to sustain uh, event in London. And well, basically here we are. That was very succinct. That's fantastic. One ambition I had early on in my career was actually to build iOS apps. And so, of course, my solution was to start a podcast talking about how to build iOS apps. And so we asked around, we got some ideas, and eventually Josh Susser from the Ruby Rogues podcast put up the idea of the iFreaks show, and that's what we called it. You can find it at iFreakShow.com, and every week we're talking about iOS development and Swift and Objective-C and libraries and reactive programming and all of the things that go into making good iOS apps. I don't run the show anymore, but we've got Andrew Madsen, who puts together the curriculum for Lambda School. We've got James Uber, who's been doing iOS development as a freelancer for a long time. We've got Mike Holt, who's a good friend of mine, who's been who's worked in Xamarin and in Swift, and currently does a bunch of interesting work on that. And we've got other people that we're bringing in all the time to make that show better. So if you're trying to keep up on all of the advancements that Apple makes, all of the announcements from WWDC, and you want to hear from people who are doing this day in and day out and talking about it and teaching people about it and doing the work with it, then you definitely need to check out iFreaks. You can find it at iFreaksShow.com. That's I-P-H-R-E-A-K-S show.com. So tell us, how did you get interested in sustaining open source? As a developer who worked in proprietary software for a very long time, uh, one of the issues that I I realized as, as a single developer that I kept working on similar solutions in different companies, mostly intranet applications. And after a couple of years, I realized that I'm actually building exact same software and solutions for really different companies. And at some point, I realized why we don't do everything open source and then, I don't know, use the same solution in different companies. That's why I started from 2014. I started studying this problem and realized that actually financial side of it, especially it's uh, there are some issues. And so this was my personal motivation. So as a developer, I want to get into open source area, but realize that uh, basically there is no money in it. And that, that's the reason that I started working on this problem. One of the things that I can say that I'm uh, interested in uh, mechanics behind this issue. One of the things that we can say that open source is, if open source is better than proprietary, why the money doesn't flow into open source? Why the open source didn't become the first choice in the industry? So the, the way that I define the problem is not that we don't give money to open source, but we give the money to proprietary solutions to com- uh, compare to open source. So why exactly this is happening and how can we fix that? So that's uh, one of the starting points for me. And if we w- move forward, uh, further, 
one of the things that we have to say is that there is no difference between open source and proprietary solutions. The motivations can be the same. They are both trying to solve problems, but there is only difference between the rights. Any proprietary software could have been, could have been open source, actually, if you agree with me on that. And when you look at like this, then uh, the, the issue becomes much more clear from my side. If you have any questions on this part, we can we can have it. Or I then I continue with comparing open source with proprietary. So what are the benefits of open source and what are the benefits of proprietary solutions? I, I do uh, have a question. Please, um, go ahead. So you've been studying this problem since 2014. And, and first off, I got to say a big thank you uh, to Chad Whitaker. I know he's he's gone through a huge... A massive effort in funding open source, really, really one of the pioneers of that. And he's not overly uh, active in, the, in, in that part of the community now, but, you know, kudos to, to Chad Whitaker for doing that. I, I want to know your opinion on how, how have you seen the community change over the last five years as far as when it comes to the funding, you know, all the way back to Gratipay with Chad Whitaker to where we are now. What, do you, what, what are the biggest changes that you see? I think everyone starts, especially after Nadia's work, uh, I think everyone is accepting open source is really becoming the fundamental of our, of our structure. So the, she coined the term digital infrastructure and focusing with heartbleed issue. I think the companies are understanding this, uh, that we have to institutionally invest in open source. So the things are uh, changing in a really positive way. And then Open Collective started Tidelift. There is this license here that we are all, uh, we, we will mention these solutions. Uh, so there is, there is really uh, good initiatives in this area, I believe. So th- things are definitely going in a, a much better direction. But still, can we make it even better? Can we increase the efficiency? That's, that's one of my questions. So, yeah, that's how I see it. And I think it's, it was pity that Chad Whitaker couldn't manage to make, uh, make things uh, keep running, let's say. It would have been great. I think he had a really good run. So, applause to him. Well, I think regardless of where Gratipay is now, or even before Gratipay, GitTip, it really helped inform us around what's possible with open source funding as far as the donations model, which is still what a lot of open source is actually funding off of. I really liked your opinion. You just said that basically open source and, part, and proprietary code are the same. The code's the same. All code is is input-output, Right. But what's different is the rights and what's different is how you approach that. Yes. And I think building structures around funding people who decide to make their thing, their code open is really important. And we don't know what's possible there. We do know that closed information systems lead to disbalances between you know, various amounts of capital. So basically, the more proprietary you have, the more money is going to funnel towards a single person or towards a small group, which is going to lead to... New York City skyscrapers for some people and yeah. New Jersey townhouses for others. I don't want to get into the profit motivation part. Uh, actually, one of the things that I think should happen is that open source should have been profitable. One of, one of the things yep. that, that would have been great, then you would drive the market. We will talk about the market. Uh, we will come to that. But first, I'm comparing proprietary and open source. And then what is these rights and what, are, what we gain from these rights? Sweet, so, go ahead. Recently, Tidelift published a survey, and Eric, I think you shared this uh, on Twitter. I did. Tidelift made a survey for 400 developers, and if you open it, uh, we can all look at it together. They asked developers to compare open source with proprietary solutions, and 
in which area you think open source is better. And if you look at the chart, it's, it's very obvious that open source is overwhelmingly better compared to proprietary solutions. So technology flexibility and extensibility, 86% of developers says open source is better, while 3% thinks uh, proprietary is better. Uh, and then the list goes on like this. So I say let's put the numbers, income uh, of open source and proprietary next to this chart. What we will see, it's, it's exactly the other way around. All the money goes to proprietary while open source is being much better. So one of the questions that we can ask, can we distribute our resources looking at this chart, for instance? Can we say 75% of the money in software industry should go to open source and 25% should be going to proprietary? Can we allocate well, the resources like this, for instance? Would it have been better? in terms of in, uh, efficiency? Well, I think if we, if we look at this, I, I actually disagree with you a little bit. The difference between proprietary software, when we talk about proprietary software in this context, I believe we're talking about, you know, applications, tools, things that are purchasable. And I, I you know, Pia and myself both live, live very, very much in the money world of open source. And when we when we look at P, I don't want to speak for you, but when I look for, when I look at it, I always think to myself, the people with the money have to have the desire and the benefit of paying the money to wherever it goes. And in in this analogy that you're saying, or in this in this thought process, it, what I'm hearing, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the finished product should make less money than the the components that build the product where the product that is being delivered is actually providing the value, where the components don't necessarily provide the value to the end user that they're aware of. Am I understanding that correctly? Well, I don't think that open source is only providing the components. Open source could be end user applications as well. It can be tools. I mean, look at Visual Studio Code or any extension can be open source. Any mobile application can be open source. So there is no difference between the solutions that we can provide if they are open source. Let's take a step back then. And so I would love to live in a world where everybody just says all code is open, but I think that would be not likely. So let's talk about what benefits do these companies that could make more money or these people that could make more money by having proprietary software, why would they turn around and make that open source? What I think that Sergan is like pointing at, and I'd like to follow that thought process is, Right now, the bulk of the money goes to software that is proprietary. That's your that's your um, premise, right? So can that yeah. goes, but there is kind of an industry wide understanding that open source software is better, right? Yeah. Let's just say better. I don't want to get into why, but let's just say better. And I think that you know Microsoft turning around from open source cancer to opening up all their software and acquiring GitHub and all that, what they're doing clearly goes towards that, right? So it shows yeah. that there is an industry-wide understanding that open source is the way to go. But we still have a money problem. That is like an imbalances of resources. So from there, your argument is like, what if we would actually turn that around and give 75% of the funding that goes to creating software to open source because we all agree is better instead of that going to proprietary? Right? Is that the kind of... The, yeah, the, let's say hypothetically, would, it, uh, would the results be better? Would the software in industry be more efficient if we could have mm -hmm. managed that? So but, let's, say, let's say yes. Probably I would say yes. I would say that if we managed to put funding 
on open source and we have more open, uh, no, more a healthier, larger, more robust open source ecosystem, yeah. we are all generally going to be better, right? Yeah. And, so and that, products are going to be better. But then the problem that you run into is how, what's your proposal for doing that, right? How so do we will get there. Get there? Let's continue with the benefits because there are more. This is just uh, what the developers thinks between open source and proprietary. And a while ago in this discourse forum, we listed the benefits of open source. And I took the list from Toby Langell's talk at FOSTEM and played with it a little bit. So, and here I'm listing three benefits. On individual level, if you uh, contribute to open source, it gives you exposure. So it's, it makes it much easier for you to get hired because your quality of code is outside open transparent. On individual level is good. On the organization level, who is building the open uh, uh, the software, if they would make it open source, they can get free contributions from outside because the repository is open. A- anyone can contribute. So the quality of the product can get higher. It maximizes the adoption because you don't put your product uh, under a paywall. Uh, the solution can grow in the market organically. You may need less marketing, if you have, especially if you have a successful solution. And on market level, on society level, uh, this gives us no vendor lock-in. So if there are more and more open source solutions, uh, this means that every other party has a chance to fork that project and create their own version. So this maximizes the freedom and prevents monopolies in the market, right? And even if the vendor who is building that software is out of business, project can continue to live. Someone else can adopt it and continue which means less business risk for all other players. So these are the known benefits. And there is one benefit that I think is the most important, which is the one that made me interested in open source, is that when we invest in open source, it prevents us to reinvent the wheel. If you look at the market, if players start adopting protectionism, protectionism becomes the default behavior in the game. If every, uh, then every software company turns into a knowledge island which means that every player has to solve the same problems within their own islands. And the collaboration between the players are getting minimized. In other words, investing in open source breaks this behavior. We should not encourage protectionism. We should invest in sharing the knowledge. So you mentioned protectionism and how it's important for us to not reinvent the wheel. And I totally agree with you. I'm an open source developer. I like it when people do things once in the world and other people don't have to do them. This is also kind of the point of coding, right? You code so you don't have to do something over and over again. That's why for loops exist. They're excellent. You don't have to write the same code forever. But coming from it from the, the other side of what is who makes proprietary code and how businesses work, by allowing other companies to use your code, you're giving up your competitive advantage. Because the whole point is that you've done the work already and they haven't. And so I know you say we should open source everything so we don't have to do the same thing. But that's directly it ends with how businesses normally work. How do you align these two? Are you in favor of dismantling businesses? Right? No, no, not at all. Uh, Definitely. I mean, basically, I'm trying to look at the benefits and just trying to compare it. And from market perspective, especially from consumer side, which one is better? Uh, which one gives us more freedom? And if we can, let's say, maximize the benefits of open source, uh, we should be able to end up having a, a market that is free. We can have free and open software market, which means every company and every developer can contribute to other softwares, right? This would maximize the innovation in a way. 
So I'm not sure what maximize innovation because you're now you're stifling competition. And no, 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 competition no. is what helps with innovation. We should still have the competition. We already have open source solutions are out there. Uh, is it killing the competition? I mean, everyone is still trying their own solution. Uh, it still matter which one is becoming successful. And we should just align the market with this. So what I'm basically saying is that, especially from consumers' point of view, if they could see all the benefits between these options, they would never invest in proprietary. That's one of my conclusions. The only reason that this can happen is that the consumers are just basically not aware of this. We are expecting too much from consumer side. Every time when we introduce open source in the market, uh, we are actually shifting responsibility to the consumers. Can you describe what you mean by consumers? Let's say every software transaction, every time we buy something, the consumers should be aware of these uh, these options. And th- that's actually how we look at the market. We, we are under the assumption that the, in the market, every player, producers and consumers, have the perfect information in the market that they know what's being built, for what cost, what are the benefits. And then we are assuming that consumers are making the transactions. But that's actually we are... But we don't. I mean, that's one of the the things about the market is that consumers don't know everything about the market. Yeah, but so, but then should this lead to inefficiency? Uh, Should, because of this, should we lose open source? And then it should struggle uh, because open source is in a way changing how we do the transactions. Uh, It allows us to consume first and then, then we should be investing in it. I mean, again, if we take things to the maximum, if the whole software market would work like this, this would have been perfect. But then we have to understand, we have to explicitly support open source, which is not something that we did for any of our transactions. So my point is that we are just increasing the responsibility on consumer consumers' end. We are expecting them to figure out. Even today from SustainOSS, there was this tweet that one was complaining that a multi-billion dollar company is do- making a donation of $44 to Curl, I guess, right? Yeah, that was Airbnb. Um, Airbnb donation okay. to Curl. And then I can understand the frustration. People are saying, hey, why $44? I mean, you're a multi-billion dollar. But what is the right number? There are millions of software users, consumers. And what is the right number for each consumer? Who? No one is calculating this amount. That's a really good point, actually, if, if, if I can um, if add something. So we think, the Open Collective, we're thinking about that same problem. So I think there is space, and it's something we've been working on with Eric. I think there is space for like a cultural shift kind of campaign where companies should just back their open source stack with one subscription that it gets divided among their dependencies. We've been thinking about this with an extremely imperfect metric that is like the size of the company, how many employees a company has, and then kind of increasing the number of the subscription based on how big the company is. But I think there is space to do something much more intelligent with like, I don't know, NPM data from usage, right? And things where we can actually say how much package is being used by a company. And so use that to kind of come up with a corporate standard or a standard for backing their open source stack. I'm a big fan of doing things like society-wise kind of thinking about it. So like companies should back their open source stack and we should have like a common standard and that's how you do it. And then yeah. that's what means to become a good open source citizen. And this is kind of the level of, of what's expected. 
from you, right? As a citizen, as an open, as a citizen that, as you said, consumes, I prefer the word use, but like kind of contributes, uses, is part of the open source community and open source ecosystem. I agree with that. However, um, and this is something that I've, I really believe strongly is that these companies that, you know, should feel this. Well, you, you and I feel this. We all feel this, that open source should be funded by those people that are benefiting from it. However, the companies that are doing that, they're not the ones thinking about how do we support the system. They think, how, how can we take every advantage that we can to build a product with the least amount of cost? So that is one of the biggest concerns I have. Sirkin, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yes, exactly. I mean, if you just leave this to the players, again, the issue is that you fall into this free rider issue. If one company, one player is supporting open source just by themselves, which means all that company's resources will be free ridden by the other players. So as long as you don't come up with a contract between all players, if you don't share the bill within all companies, then you will never achieve this. At least more than 50% of the players should be doing that. Basically, that's why I'm coming uh, to the conclusion that should we open source, uh, should we sustain open source by introducing open source tax? So can we introduce open source tax to software purchases uh, and then create a public fund and then distribute this money to all open source projects based on some metrics? Basically, uh, Tidelift is doing something like this. Of course, it's up to you to subscribe to that. But, but what they do is that uh, you have a subscription and then this pool of money is being distributed to all the projects under them based on some metrics. And as we just learned recently is that they are checking lines of code, for instance, which we can argue whether it's healthy or not. But I believe we can collect enough metrics to understand the usage of the open source and the importance of that uh, solutions and then distribute this money. But my suggestion or the way I would go is to do it on a governmental level. Sorry, I, I just want to interject real quick on the Tidelift thing. One, I'm a big fan of Tidelift. I've been talking to some of the people over there, and I think that they have very good intentions. But I got to say that they are not providing, they're not using, they're not taxing the usage of it. They're selling a product. They're turning around and turning code and maintaining the code as a product under an SLA agreement. They're not taxing at all. So when you, no, no. When you refer to them as an example, can you clarify how that's similar? Definitely. So, uh, of course, it's up to up to the players to subscribe to Tidelift. That's right. Uh, and Tidelift is a is a for profit organization in the end. But again, it's possible to see open source as a really digital infrastructure and as a public good. We can use tax system to maintain our public good. We are already doing this. This is again from the code of Nadia Egbal's work. Our title is Roads and yep. Bridges, right? Yep. We have to change our understanding about open source. Let's see it as an infrastructure. And then if we don't uh, want to end up in tragedy of commons or free rider issue, then you have to make a contract between all players. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. If we expect from every player to subscribe to Tidelift, you can only sustain a little bit of, of it. But Plus, Tidelift doesn't... Tidelift is more about selling the, 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 the packages being maintained... But what's interesting, and I think the reason you keep bringing it up, is that they have a cascading model where it goes down to all the dependencies at some point. Or at least they hope to. You know, the maintainers have to sign up to get that money and they have to agree to certain terms. But basically the idea is, hey, you maintain this, we'll pay you, and you're down in the stack. And therefore anyone who's up the stack will be able to like fund the entire ecosystem. 
unfortunately, because it's a product model, it doesn't necessarily lead to funding the commons. So I think what we would need is some sort of other system where we look at all the code that exists in the world and how it's supported and then find a way to remunerate or remunerate people for their contributions. What I'm interested in, or what, the question that keeps bugging me in the back of my head, yeah. is that right now, say the roads, the interstate system in the U.S., right? Let's take that as a concrete example. Not, not a private road that's been built by a farmer, which is something else. But like the interstate system has been built using public funds for the public good by the government. And it takes work to maintain it. And yep. so the government agrees and everyone who's in the U.S. and uh, basically has signed the social contract saying they're either a U.S. citizen or at least a U.S. taxpayer agrees to put money towards maintaining that infrastructure. And you want to do this for open source code because open source code is used everywhere and therefore we should all do it. My question is, why should I have to pay for Dominic Tarr's modules? I didn't write them. I didn't ask them to be written. He just wrote them and then put them out there and then, and then banks started using them and now they're everywhere. Should I pay for Dominic Tarr's modules? I don't know, right? I, again, I'm being devil's advocate here, obviously. Definitely. But, uh, yeah, of course, we have to be discussing these details. But in the end, again, if, if we want to, when we look at the, according to Black Duck survey, 60% of the code that they are analyzing from security perspective, that uh, 60% of the code is open source. So we are already uh, heavily relying on open source. Yeah, but that was their fault for making the open source code in the first time. Why should I pay maintainers who have licensed their code open source? They agreed to let it be publicly used. Why should I be taxed for that? I don't understand. Again, I'm looking at from the consumer's point of view. If you yep. do this, we give money to proprietary and that's less efficient. But it's more efficient for me to keep my money and not pay anyone who agreed to have their code be released publicly. Yeah, it's a matter of utilizing the resources. What is the best way of utilizing our resources? If we ask consumers to figure this out, they are not making the best investment in the market. So can we help them in a way? Can we introduce this system as sort of investment tool on behalf of the consumer? So can what you're we- describing is state-sponsored code socialism. Well, <laughs> I don't mind how we, how we call it. Let's... Let me turn around. I, I'm going to back you sure. up here, sir. Because I'm sorry, I, I believe I'm, I'm, that... I'm trying to get to the extremes. I, I know it sounds like I'm being a total jerk here. <laughs> I, I host this podcast for a reason. Don't don't worry. Yeah. I like open source. One of my favorite communities in programming these days is the Angular community. Every time I go to an Angular conference or meet up with some of my friends who are in the Angular community, I have a great time. And a lot of them have wound up on Adventures in Angular. So if you're doing front end development, you're looking for a way to keep current on the Angular ecosystem and you want to have a good time listening to fun people talk about great topics related to Angular, then go check out Adventures in Angular at adventuresinangular.com. So I want to go back to that, the freeway uh, idea. And Circuit, I agree with you. I agree that something needs to be done. And I agree that a taxation is, is a really good way to go. In fact, there was a, uh, an initiative on the Ethereum protocol to set up a micro tax on every transaction to be able, and have that money go directly to funding all of the open source code that drives that infrastructure. I mean, it makes sense, right? The, the question I have is if who needs to make the changes to make this happen? Is it, is it us, the maintainers? Is it the uh, package managers and all of those like NPM and GitHub and those things? Is it the companies that need to make the change uh, or is it the government? Honestly, I, I, I'm just very curious. How do you see us from getting to from where we are now to a point where that tax exists? And can I add another point to what Eric says, Serkan, because I'd love to hear this. Like, what's the entity that makes this happen? Where, the, where is the money going to? 
like say say there is a tax system like it's 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 the government receiving the money and then allocating the resources like what do you is there like an ICANN kind of agency that receives the money like what how do you see this uh, crystallizing yes uh, so i think one of the things that we have to do is to build a prototype of distributing this money to multiple open source projects so we we have to come up with a prototype on Let's say we have 100 money. What is the best way of the distributing this 100 money to all open source projects? Which one would get what kind of share? We have to answer this question first, and then we have to study the metrics of in open source. What do we have and what else do we need to, to have healthy me- metrics and healthy distribution? And once we have a prototype, I think it can be quite interesting to build a website saying that imagine 1% of the in- software industry is being distributed Uh, by these metrics? Can we have a, a better results and then maybe get the community behind the, this idea and then show them the results? What, what could have happened? That's one thing. And then once you have a good prototype that everyone sort of agrees that this could have really made a difference, then you can go to the governments and say, guys, we have an idea. We know uh, open source is much more beneficial compared to proprietary. And once we leave this option to the consumers, they are failing with this investment responsibility because they just cannot collect all this information and then make the right decision and let alone explicitly support an op- of open source. So let's introduce open source tax. Let's build a public fund, publicly managed fund. And maybe again, I don't know, uh, ideally, of course, it would have been great that they use the implementation that we built with this prototype. Uh, and then distribute the money to uh, whatever the tax that they collect, 1% of all software purchases, and then it should be distributed so, from the results of this fund, uh, of this prototype. Can I? So the, the thing that's, that like immediately jumps at me is, yeah. I think you are talking, I love that we actually have a controversial kind of idea here, um, because it feels like, yes, Access. we're like ch- chatting about something that is like, challenging and it's great what makes noise to me from this idea and it always happens and this it's kind of the crux of of the problem that i tackle with my in, in what i do but it's like you are talking in two different levels of the stack right because a public fund and the stack i'm talking about like the global institutional stack right not the open source stack so a public fund is something that a government it's under the umbrella of a government inside a certain territory right? Open source is another level of the stack. Like open source is being done by folks in a separate, like an outside of the nation state kind of level, right? It doesn't matter where they are territorially, like they're anywhere in the world. So the logistics, in my mind, my mind goes crazy with the logistics of a public fund held in a U.S. government institution trying to support And, and, and U.S. nationals being taxed inside their territory to support maintainers living in, let's say, Ukraine, just because it's been in the news, right? So um, I see that as a really, really difficult, almost like, like a okay. blocker. It's, it's a wall there. I think that Eric has been working, and obviously he can bring it on, like a, a project that like, is thinking about this as well, but... It seems to me like if a solution like this is going to be tackled, it needs to be tackled in the proper level of the stack where open source is happening. And that is not inside of a territory under the kind of the domain of one government or nation state. Yeah, I but would love to, to get a tanker <laughs> and put it in the middle of the English Channel where it's like international waters. 
and yeah. have the charter for the tanker be this is a new independent nation yeah. and we don't respect the MIT license. That's <laughs> <laughs> just the laws of this nation. And just see what happens. I would love yeah. that. Sorry. Logical conclusion. I was about to swear. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, can you were saying something? Yeah. Uh, from that side, it might seem might not practical, but as a Dutch citizen, can I buy something from US? Is there anything that prevents me to buy Microsoft Windows or Office? I'm making that purchase in any way. So these transactions are happening across the world. And as a government, you are trying to, you are trying to improve the investments. I, of course, this is a new role that the government should have. But open source is also new. This digital infrastructure is also new. So I think we should, of course, think a little bit outside of the box for sure. I don't uh, think it's a new role. I think I think this is the oldest role the governments have had. The governments have, been, have existed in order to safeguard the merchants working on their roads and working for their cities. I mean, that's why you used to have armed militias basically stopping robbers from coming out and stealing your stagecoaches, right? We just started framing it as investments since Adam Smith. But the government has always been around to protect the public economic interest of its citizens. Maybe a certain class of citizens, you know, that didn't include women for a long time. That's an issue. But nowadays, sure, governments actually kind of mainly exist to protect the economic interests of the citizens. The question here is that like open source doesn't respect international boundaries. And so what do you do there? How do you pay people? And how do you convince America to pay people who live in the Netherlands? How do you send yeah. the money? Like sending the money is already a nightmare. Just before Blockchain. you had to convince exactly right. <laughs> like before you have to convince Americans to pay for i mean i well, think it should be a worldwide tax so right? what's interesting for me is that we, we we come from this conclusion and I, second you also have this that well it doesn't matter I, I we already live in a transnational world i'm already making purchases in the u.s it's fine and i think that comes from a very specific idea that we have this myth about the internet that it exists outside of nation states it doesn't the internet does not the internet is actually dependent on physical cables that are run by nation states and by militaries. A really good example of this is actually, if you look at IP addresses, before the period, you know, it's like 125.0.0.1, whatever. Before the period, there's only 256 possible combinations of numbers there. One 256 of the internet is solely dedicated to MIT because MIT set up the internet a lot, right? And so like a non-trivial amount of IPs only exist for MIT use. Which is fascinating because we think the internet is being this global thing, but actually a lot of it has been partitioned away and used because it's been set up in the interest of the trans-American global military industrial complex. Wow, um, that's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, which I probably, again, I feel like I'm going to get in trouble for hosting this podcast because I keep <laughs> quoting Chomsky in my head. But it's really interesting to me. And so I think another route we could possibly take is saying to Lockheed Martin, to the American military, to uh, the UN, to UNESCO, to, you know, any large transnational body. Hey, you're dependent on open source code, specifically curl, which is, you know, was used in all the spy tricks, which were like leaked two years ago by a CIA informant. That's dependent on like a couple of dudes in the basement. Maybe we should pay them some money so that Everything doesn't go haywire. I mean, remember two years ago when AWS went down in the Eastern Seaboard and everyone had no internet for like four hours? It was really awkward, <laughs> you know? 
So that might be a good avenue to go towards having a tax. Yeah, but um, what is the difference between asking companies, individual companies, to support open source versus doing this on a public fund? Companies that- won't do this. Companies are not interested. They're interested in their own profit. Yeah, Which is so, why I was trying to say, why should I pay for you know someone else's modules? I'm trying to get my own company going here. If you don't want to see it as an investment, that's fine. Uh, again, in the end, I'm pointing out the inefficiency that we have, the clutter in the market, that the, the innovation speed that we are having, that yep. it's, it's being reduced because of all this protectionism. So if we want to break this habit, of course, it, it requires a higher form of organization, let's say. In the end, everyone is asking companies to support open source. And again, open source is still everywhere. So if you ask one company to support open source, they still have to do these international transactions, which is still a problem. So we are not changing anything over there. I'm just doing it on a, on a higher level with a much systematic way. So is it clear that I don't see any difference in that problem? It's for, no, it's clear why, why you're saying that we should, you know, ask governments to do this. I, I totally get that. I think it's great. And I think it's better than the current model, which, you know, we tried a few years ago with like GitTip, where we asked developers to pay, right? Hey, developers, can you give tips? And it's like, that was a good idea, but it didn't go places. And it didn't go places eventually. It helped fund the conversation, but it didn't because developers can only support so many developers before you end up in a giant monumental whirlpool. And what we want to do is get above the whirlpool. That's a really weird metaphor, but I'm running with it. And so I totally, I totally understand where you're coming from. Yes. It's just uh, hard to convince governments of anything. There can be a couple of areas that we can push. I believe United Nations is trying to include IT specialists in all these conversations. How can we improve things? Uh, there, there are these social development goals. Maybe we can look at their programs. On your, there was one your, person I know of who went to Davos who's been working on this sort of stuff. I, I don't know well, if she's going to take the bait. But I wouldn't be surprised that there are people already trying this. On European level, uh, European uh, Commission has a lot of programs that are trying to see what can be done by technology. If we could come with a good proposal, it wouldn't be really big surprise that uh, they, they would want to try something like this. But uh, of course, uh, we have to study a lot. I don't say that it's an easy issue. I'm only saying if we could do this systematically with a social contract that all players agree uh, that there is a bill to be paid and we are, let's split this bill to everyone and then make the investment in a systematic way, we could have achieved much more. That's my feeling. But uh, it's for sure that there are a lot of obstacles to be solved. There are a lot of studies that needs to be done. And don't get me wrong, this is going to take years even if we will take this route. But I think then we can, we can really see, we can solve sustainability issue over here. I think one of the things I've had in my, in my head while you've been talking about investments and viewing it as an investment is that governments are largely run by people who have actually been in the corporate world, right? It's not largely run by politicians who have existed in the vacuum of politician era, right? The Bernie Sanders of, the, of governments are rare. Most people come from large firms, have some sort of financial backing going for them, and then end up in government, which means that when they see or hear the word investments, what they hear is quarterly, not necessarily annual, not necessarily decade. Almost no one thinks in terms of generational investments, which I think is like the most important. Let's plant a tree now so my grandkid can live under it. you know. But most people think about quarterly stuff. And it's hard to invest in open source to have quarterly returns because that's not really how maintaining software works, in my opinion, right? I don't know US that much, of course. But in Europe, I believe... I would like to trust in, in the governments, governmental institutions. So 
over here, I would see a positive uh, approach uh, to these kind of ideas. Of course, yeah, politics is different. But again, we should only look at from this efficiency point of view. As long as the money goes to proprietary, I mean, we have to accept that the money is there. We spend money on software. Let's try to shift it, let's say. That's, that's how I would look at it. And if you leave this to consumers, it's going to take either a lot of time or maybe it will never happen. So I think if we want to expect a change, you can't expect a change from people who are driven by profit. I think, for example, if we take a look at the supply chain of open source, if the change is only to benefit, let's say like Starbucks, right? If the change that we're doing is only benefiting the, the, the uh, growers of the coffee beans, then the growers of the coffee beans are the ones that have to make the change, not Starbucks, who is already making plenty of money and can say, well, we'll go elsewhere. That, to me, makes me believe that the open source community, those developers, really need to collaborate and say, this is, the, this is our social change that we're going to make. This is our social contract that we're going to have. The problem that we have in that, and I see this all the time, is that a lot of the developers who are building open source don't care about the money. It's not about the money to them. For example, I spoke with somebody yesterday who, so uh, I'll get into on my pick, I'll kind of share a big thing that we're announcing on CodeFund. But one of the things is I reached out to somebody who said, hey, I told him, hey, we're, we're, we're opening up a new channel to fund open source. We'd like to help you. And he told me, he just said, I'm not interested because I'm privileged. I have a job that pays me. I can work open source. There's no benefit to the money coming to me. So how do you, and I imagine that a lot of these large open source projects are maintained by people very similar to that. If that's the case, how do you get all of these people to collectively decide this is what we're going to do when even within the very beginnings of this um, supply chain, there are people who are saying, yo, I've got, I've got a mansion, I've got a farm, I've, you know, I, I've got people working for me, I don't need more money. They're thinking about other things like how can I grow? How can I how can I grow adoption? How can I build it out more? You know, I, I just don't think that the government's the way to go personally because who's benefiting? The government really isn't getting benefit from there. The companies aren't getting benefit because the only real person that would get the benefit are those are those developers. Now, I have a lot of thoughts around this, and I, I want to push it back to you guys. But what are your thoughts on that? Again, my selling point is, is seeing open source as an investment and see open source as an infrastructure. If, if we can invest open source in a structural way, you will get more and not less. So even with all the lack of funding, open source delivers a lot. If there will be more money, then it's better for the whole ecosystem, for the whole software industry. Again, what... what uh, please, Pia, go ahead. No, no, I just, I, I agree. I think I agree with you in that. I think that it's not about money going to individuals. I think that that's a very individualistic approach. I think that money going to communities or to uh, the collective, even if that person is privileged enough that they can work for open source, then I'm sure there is a lot of investment to be done in how they grow their community. So if you don't want to take money for yourself, great, just pay for better documentation so everyone else can use your software better or, you know, hire technical writers or hire someone to look at how you're like doing in the diversity and inclusion aspect of your, of your community or pay for first issues so you can grow the number of contributors that you have, right? So I'm not advocating for the government to pay for this. I'm just saying that 
I, I think that we need to take a more holistic approach in supporting open source as communities and not just as maintainers. Yes, again, I, I totally agree that if someone doesn't, if uh, they do open source just as a gift, that, that's totally fine. If a particular person doesn't want to get money out of open source work, fine. But the question is, if, we, if there will be more money in open source, will we have more? And my answer is definitely yes, just, just invest in it. The, the money is there. So please uh, look at open source, comparing uh, with proprietary. How much money goes to proprietary? Which one we should be rewarding it? That would be my point. And again, the consumers are ultimately making this decision. They cannot do this decision if they don't know all the aspects of their decision. So that's why I'm trying to in- introduce this, or I'm, I'm tr- interested in this solution, as a sort of market co- correction, let's say, uh, or uh, organizing the consumer investments. And the governments are already in this space. It's their role to do these corrections Anyway, we are, uh, we are already using these systems for other, uh, for other infrastructures, uh, physical infrastructures. So why not try it for open source? That's my way of looking at it. And I can understand that it's maybe hard to swallow, but I also accept the fact that open source and this digital infrastructure is also new. So that's why we have to combine the solutions in this area. So, of course, I believe governments should also a little bit transformed to get to this responsibility, to this role. But if you leave it to the companies or individuals, I don't think we can really balance this situation. It's just the responsibility on their end without centralized approach. It's just too much. And we, we come to this inefficiency result. That's, that's how I see it. One of the other things that I'm thinking that lately all the big companies are getting into open source. Microsoft is uh, investing in open source a lot. Google, Facebook, uh, Twitter, IBM. At some point, we have to see that these companies, when they build and invest in open source, again, all the other industries are free riding these companies' resources. So don't look at just from individual perspective. At some point, Microsoft can also be in favor of this kind of approach because they will be the only ones that are subsidizing this work from their own resources. So, okay, let's split this bill, guys. I mean, either let's do it on company level or let's do it on a uh, government policies with an open source tax. Why not? In the long run, I wouldn't be surprised that if there is a larger and larger investments from corporates, they might be supporting this kind of solution because they they also want to get out of this of course, they are benefiting. There is a strategic move over there for them. But once they start losing it, either they will shut down those gates. Uh, they will say, okay, no more money to this open source project. Or maybe they will be interested in a solution like this. Again, this is just a matter of organizing the investments. I want to see it that way. Does it make sense? It makes sense to me. And I think that's actually probably a really good point to end this podcast. Because I think that was very just concise and summarizes it. And I want to say thank you so much. If you don't mind, anyone have any other points they want to raise before we move on to picks? Been talking for around an hour. No, I'm happy to do picks. Sound good? It's been a fantastic conversation. I've really enjoyed this. Same. Um, For the last 10 minutes, I've had the union song in my head, though. When the union's inspiration through the developer's (laughs) retro. Let us know if you ever write about this like more in depth. I think it's worth kind of going deep into into this idea. I can try to turn into an article. Perfect. Thanks so much. I would love that. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood. And over the last few years, I've gotten to know a lot of great people within the Microsoft community and specifically in the .NET area. 
uh, one of our guests from JavaScript Jabber, Sean Claybo, actually reached out to me and said he wanted to start a show on .NET. And there are a ton of people out there that I feel like sometimes get neglected in the .NET space. So if you're one of those folks, uh, you've been listening to maybe one or two of the other .NET-focused or Microsoft-focused podcasts for a while and thought, well, where's the devchat.tv-style podcast for me in .NET? You can find it. It's at adventuresin.net.net is spelled out, D-O-T-N-E-T. Adventuresin.net.com. Go check it out today. All right, picks. So this is the point where we say two or three things that are interesting in the past week or so. I'll go first. I was looking for a Twitter account, but I can't find it, so I'm going to move on and just have two picks today. One of them is NPM Tools by Unified JS, which is by Worm. Titus, we've had him on this podcast. Titus is an awesome person who really knows how to build an ecosystem out of GitHub repos. Uh, NPM Tools is a fascinating project he has online to basically organize your NPM ownerships and memberships if you have an org. I spent this week building another one where if you don't have an org, it's just a single person if you don't want to use an NPM org called Validate Maintainers. But his tool is way better set up than mine and beautiful, so you should go check it out. Then the other thing I want to talk about today is the Access Fund which is a nonprofit dedicated to climbers and towards buying land and uh, lobbying for rock climbers across the States. There may be as many as 7.7 million climbers in the States, according to a recent stat. What I love about this is that these are people who have a side hobby that they then organized to lobby for a government to have more <laughs> access and more funds to make it easier to do that thing. I love I'll that. let that subtly sink in. The access funds, they're great. They recently bought a large property of land by donating to a VT Crag, which is a Vermont association here. So 20 minutes from my house, the Bolton Dome is now owned by climbers, which is awesome. So thank you, Access Fund. Pia, what do you got? So I have two things. As usual, I have the book I'm reading. I'm reading uh, Asymmetry by Lisa Halliday. It's Lisa's first novel, and it's really, really good. A whole chunk of it, it happens in New York. And so I'm super homesick for New York at the moment. But yeah, it's a great first novel. I very much recommend it. So that, so Asymmetry by Lisa Halliday. And the other thing I have for today is an obscure artist. She's a pianist. She's, I, I think, Richard, you're going to love this. She's an Ethiopian nun. And she's the best pianist I've ever seen, uh, heard. Sorry, I've never seen her. Uh, her name is Imahoy Segue Mariam Gebru. I'm going to write that for all of you. But I don't know. I love hearing her piano when I'm cooking, for example. It's ultimate cooking music. Super relaxing. Just, yeah, I love her. So my gift to you. Eric. Uh, I've got a few ones today. The first one, of course, is uh, Pipe Drive. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, so I, I have a few ones. I'll start off, start off with kind of my silly purchase that I made. So I, I love my AirPods. I, I use them all the time. And I carry them around on my belt. And I found this fantastic leather case for my AirPods that I can just hang on a belt loop. I think I look awesome on it with it. I mean, I probably look as awesome as, as somebody does with a fanny pack, but to me, I'm pretty freaking handsome with it. So there you go. And that one I'll just share in the in the show notes if you want, but pretty nice. Uh, the second one I want to share is OS Coin. So if you go to oscoin.io, this is very relevant to the conversation that we've had today. OS Coin's idea is to basically create the taxation within within open source directly within the code. 
and they have an idea of, um, I think the word is, um, uh, what is it? It's inflationary funds. So they're creating an inflationary fund that will turn around and fund open source. And they use basically a page rank similar to Google to determine the value of every project. But their goal is to fund everything. And they believe they can do that with a, an inflationary fund. And then finally, I want to share some news about CodeFund. CodeFund is a project that uh, I work on. Our goal is to fund open source through ethical advertising. If you remember back in 2017, I started it off as code sponsor, where we placed ethical ads on a GitHub, on the GitHub readmes. And every time an individual would click on that, that uh, image, that project would get funded. Well, over the past two, two years, I've been really trying to get back in good graces with GitHub and since a turnover and with uh, people like Devin Zugel uh, in place, that's happened. And so I'm, I'm, I'm proud to announce, uh, and hopefully by the time you listen to this, we'll officially have released it, but we are getting back onto GitHub repositories. We're doing it very differently, but uh, our, thank you. Our goal is to, to fund those open source projects directly. There are some differences in it that I'll go over uh, once we release it. But if you're interested, go to codefund.io. And part of this is that we do want those funds to be able to trickle down to dependencies. So similar to how Tidelift does it, the money that gets turned in, the developer will have the option, the maintainers will have the option to have some of those funds distributed to those dependencies. And that's our goal. Hopefully by November 1st, we'll have our official launch, but uh, we're currently doing, uh, well, I don't need to mention this because you won't hear it by then, but we're looking for beta testers for October. We've already got uh, several lined up. So those are my picks. Thank you so much, Eric. Second, what do you got? Yes. Well, one of the things that I can say, uh, if I can make guest recommendations, I would be really interested in hearing License Zero, uh, Kyle E. Mitch. Totally. I think he's a fantastic guy. I'm reading his articles. I mean, aside from the pics, let's say. And I think Black Duck Software is providing enormous data on open source. Maybe if you can invite these guys as guests, that can be really interesting to hear what they think and get their opinions. And the, from the pick side, there is one TED Talk. It's a bit old, uh, but Marcin Jakubowski. Uh, there was this uh, open source ecology initiative from 2011. Open source blueprints for civil, civilization is TED Talk. That could be one pick. Uh, recently, I watched uh, a nice animation about Second World War and the consequences of it. It's a, it's a very nice animation. I liked it. I could recommend that. And then there is this great channel called, uh, in a nutshell, Kurzgesagt in German. And they have a really nice animation called The Egg. Uh, and I could, uh, uh, these could be my picks, let's say. Awesome. Uh, but, but this Kurzgesagt, this in a nutshell, is a, is a great uh, channel that you can find a lot of nice animations, uh, mostly 10 minutes animations with full of information about really different topics. It's a great channel, YouTube channel. Please check it out. Danke sehr. Um, <laughs> wish I spoke German better than that, but I don't. So, no gesagt. Um, gesagt, yeah. Thank you so much. It was an honor having you on. Super fun yes. to talk about these things. Let's Thanks so much, guys. Yeah. Perfect. Right. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Take and care. Yep. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.